Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members and guests at IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Israel Bible Podcast. I received lots of messages that we were dearly missed, and thank you for missing us, and thank you for listening again to the podcast. It is fun to be with you once more. I was in Israel all summer and exploring the land and getting back in touch with all the things that I love to do, and in the meantime, Israel Bible Center has been producing so many new roundtable talks, lots of new and fascinating courses, and I cannot wait to dig into all of this material with all of you. So I have been more recently thinking a lot about the creation narratives of Genesis, mainly because I'm starting to teach several different classes where I'm teaching the whole narrative of the Bible, and we always start with these Genesis narratives. And I love them because they set the worldview for people. They tell us how to understand the human place in the world and the type of hope that we can have regarding God's activity in the world. I also really enjoy comparing the Israelite stories with other surrounding ancient Near Eastern stories of creation and being which means I really do need to interview Dr. Nicholas Shazer on his course, Israelite Creation in Context. Have you taken it yet? Because it's really good and we should dive into all of that. But what happens if we pause before we compare Israelite narratives to surrounding narratives and we actually just look at the Israelite creation stories in different translations? What do we learn when we compare the Hebrew version of the creation narratives with the Greek versions? Well, if you are curious like me, you will be happy to know that in a recent roundtable talk, Dr. Yeshaya Gruber sat down with Dr. Robert Hebert for a conversation titled Creator and Creation in the Septuagint. It is so good and it is super wonderfully nerdy. So I'm just going to choose a few fun points out of their conversation and highlight them for you. Let's start first with some basic vocabulary so that we're all on the same page. What is the Septuagint? And when was it created? And what is it that we can learn by studying it? There are stories, there are legends. Uh, about the origins of the Septuagint or the Old Greek, the most uh, famous of which, and perhaps the earliest of which, is the so-called Letter of Aristeus, which purports to be the story of this translation project initiated uh, by the Egyptian uh, pharaoh, Pharaoh Ptolemy II Philadelphus, at the instigation of one of his courtiers who said, you know, there's this marvelous work of Jewish laws 
which would be a great addition to your library, the great, the, fa the famous Alexandrian library. The only problem is it isn't in Greek. It needs to be translated. And so one thing led to another. There was a letter written to the high priest in Jerusalem named Eliezer, and uh, a delegation went, and there was, you know, great collegiality, formality, and uh, what happened was that the high priest uh, commissioned six scholars from each of the 12 tribes to accompany the scroll of the Torah written in letters of gold to Alexandria, where these 72 translators worked at it. And as uh, though it were preordained or foreordained, the project was completed in 72 days. And that's the um, story from which we get the terminology of Septuagint, uh, the idea or the, the word 70 in Latin, Septuaginta, uh, derives from this story. And uh, so that's the, the, one of the early stories with respect which, to the, this translation project, which was then embellished in subsequent tellings of the story by Philo, by Josephus, and others. And I think the impact of, of this undertaking was that, um, as I say, it was, it was the earliest or one of the earliest attempts at doing this in a completely different language system. And I think it was more likely motivated by the needs of uh, the Jewish community in the Hellenistic world, uh, for many of whom uh, Greek or Hebrew would have been uh, a language of, uh, you know, synagogue activity and that sort of thing. But their, their lingua franca would, in many cases, particularly in places like Alexandria, would have been Greek. So yeah. they needed interesting. the scriptures in in their vernacular. And uh, so that there, there are interesting touches with respect to the translation, which I think betrays uh, the kind of culture in which uh, the translators were, were living. So we get a sense of the world in which Jews were living at that period of time as reflected in the translation. It uh, represents, I think, the first uh, example in history, really, of uh, an endeavor to translate uh, the Jewish scriptures into another language. We think it probably took place in Alexandria, Egypt, and the first foray into this activity uh, involved the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of Moses. And so we think that's the likely scenario for this project to be undertaken. Subsequent to that, uh, the rest of the canon, the, the Jewish scriptures, was translated over the next couple of centuries, probably. And uh, then other books, which were part of the, I guess, the corpus of, of Jewish writings, which are uh, usually applied, or the, the terminology of apocrypha or pseudepigrapha is applied to them, were being written during this period of time. And some of those were, in fact, original Greek compositions. Others were translations. Um, so it 
the the ball really started rolling, I suppose, with respect to a, a Greek version of the scriptures starting in the first probably quarter of the third century BC. In the round table talk, Dr. Hebert talks at great length about several different Greek translations and documents and their personalities, per se. Did you even know that there were other Greek translations of the Jewish scriptures aside from the Septuagint, and those date to the second century AD? So that would be four to five hundred years after the Septuagint. And if you want to nerd out about that, go listen to the full conversation on the IBC website. It is very fascinating. But in this episode of the podcast, we are focusing specifically on the Septuagint. And as Dr. Hebert mentioned, there are legends about why the Septuagint exists. So an Egyptian ruler wanted a copy of the Jewish law, and he commissioned scholars to create a translation. Or there are historical reasons to think that the Greek-speaking Jewish community itself wanted its own translation. There's a conversation that follows this question about why the Septuagint came out, and that would be, can we tell if the translation happened at one time or over a long period of time? Were there multiple translators involved? Are there different versions of the Septuagint? It, it's, it's, I think, good to or, or appropriate to think of it in terms of, you know, multiple translations. I think, for example, with respect to the Pentateuch, the first five books, uh, there's there's good evidence that it's likely there were different translators uh, for each of the books, or at least significant sections. This goes against kind of the the, the legends, which suggest that you know when the when the seventy two translators worked, they came up with a a unified document in the sense of everybody agreed that this was the way it should be written. But when we actually are translated, when we actually look at the linguistic phenomena, um, it's clear that there is variety, uh, even within the same book, in terms of how to render you know, Hebrew terms, Hebrew expressions, the syntax, and that sort of thing. So there's a variety that exists. And that suggests uh, unanimity on everything, um, you know, a common consensus, um, is a less likely option, that, that each translator worked um, independently to some extent, but that then these early translations created kind of a precedent for subsequent translators. And so some of the decisions that were made by the earliest translators, presumably the Pentateuch, uh, influenced subsequent translators in some of their decisions. So, yeah, I think there's, there's a variety. Um, and you go from book to book throughout the canon, and there's a range from kind of very um, close proximity to the Hebrew text to a great deal of freedom and, and everything in between. But even within the book, sometimes you get extreme fidelity to the Hebrew and then very good Greek in the same book in other places. So it's... Um, it, one gets the sense that uh, translators were, you know, this was an innovative project. This was something new. And so they were working out um, how should this be done. 
If you are a student of IBC, you already know that we talk quite a bit about translation matters, and I always think it's a lot more fascinating to explore specific examples. So let's compare the Hebrew and the Greek versions of the creation narratives. Dr. Hebert says that there are good reasons to believe the Septuagint translation project started with the book of Genesis. But when you look at the Greek version, it is not a strict word-for-word translation. There are added brackets or phrases or clues as to how to read it. We should ask why and follow up with what that might tell us about the translators who are tackling this new project of communicating Israelite writings in their modern Greek translation. And this is an interesting feature where, you know, whereas the book of Genesis tends to be pretty, follow the Hebrew pretty closely throughout the book, this is one of the places right off the bat uh, in the first chapter in a bit, where there's a bit of a departure. And there's a conscious decision, it seems, on the part of the translator to bracket this passage, you know, from 1 verse 1 to 2 verse 3, so that there's a similar or the same wording at the beginning and at the end. And of course, this is a a strategy that is used in the Hebrew Bible, too, uh, in in different parts where uh, the earliest manuscripts, of course, that were produced didn't have things like chapter and verse divisions, but there were ways in which uh, sections of text were demarcated. Uh, And one of the ways would be to repeat at the beginning, at the end, or more or less the the repetition at the beginning of the end. One example of this would be Psalm 8, right? Uh, O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's verse one, and that's the last verse. And so it brackets that Psalm. And so in uh, in the book of Genesis, it starts off, of course, Hebrew, in the beginning. So there's a debate as to, first of all, whether this is a, uh, if, if verse one is a complete sentence or whether it's the introduction to, it, it's a dependent clause where the main clause is later on, either in verse two or verse three. In the Hebrew, it's probably something along those lines. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and then you go to verse 2 and verse 3. The Greek, however, makes it an independent sentence. In the beginning, God made the sky and the earth, period. So the language there in the Greek, en arche apois in hatheos, in the beginning God made, is replicated in 2 verse 3, where... In the Septuagint text, it says that uh, he left off from all his works God had begun to make. Whereas in the Hebrew, uh, I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version, which, by the way, for our Nets translation was kind of our um, point of departure. We we wanted to make a... a, uh, choose a particular English translation, which... When the Greek and the Hebrew diverged, we could adjust the English so that people could read synoptically, more or less. So the uh, Hebrew text reads something to the effect that in 2 verse 3, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation, as opposed to the works that God had begun to make. And so this idea of a beginning is um, 
replicated in one verse one and two verse three, the idea of a beginning and of God making things. That's repeated in the Greek, and it doesn't have a corresponding feature in the Hebrew in the same way. So that's a deliberate choice, uh, seemingly to uh, demarcate this passage as, you know, a, a discrete unit or an independent unit. This sounds like a really little detail, but it's kind of big, right? Either in the beginning of the act of creation, when we, the audience, enter the drama, we see God in the act of creating. That's the Hebrew version. Or we, the audience, are there for the very initial part of beginning. In a moment, bam, God started creating. The Septuagint version. Subtle language shifts, right? But with very important distinctions. In the roundtable talk, Dr. Gruber then points out another contrast between the Hebrew and the Greek in Genesis chapter 1. It seems that in the Septuagint translation of Genesis, there's something that's called semantic leveling when it comes to two important Hebrew verbs that appear in this first story of creation, asa and bara, to make, usually in English rendered as to make and to create. So to create is kind of the higher uh, type of activity that is assumed to be uh, appropriate for God. Um, but in the Septuagint, they're all rendered by poieo, um, right. or most of most of the time, most which is to make time. or to do. Right. Um, this raises a really interesting question or problem, I think, um, because it's the kind of distinction that you would have thought that they wanted to preserve, or they would have wanted to preserve. Right. So how, how can it be that in this, you know, opening part of the translation, they decided to merge those two concepts that seem so different in the Hebrew? Well, yeah, that's one of those questions, right? Uh, and a lot of these questions, we can only speculate as to what their motivation would be. But I would say that this was one of the places at which subsequent Greek translations felt, you know, this could be improved upon. So in Aquila, Simicus, and Theodosian, in 1 verse 27, for example, where bara occurs, uh, the word is ktidzo in Greek, which is your one of your standard words for create. That would correspond to bara much better than a poieo. And uh, aquila also in verse 1 has ktidzo rather than poieo. So from the very first verse, subsequent Greek translators, Jewish Greek translators, presumably aquila, would, well, now there's some debate as to whether they were Jewish or, or not, but they felt, yeah, you know, those first translators could have done a better job, and let's put a word in that more correspond, more closely corresponds to Hebrew bara than poyao. So why they chose to do that um, is, is a good question. Um, I'm not sure I have a good answer. Semantic leveling. Okay, but what about when a word is added, not taken away? What do we see when we notice that translators are choosing a Greek word that is really thick with meaning in the Greek Hellenistic thought, and that word is being used to communicate a Hebraic idea? This is um, an example of what happens really, I think, with any translation undertaking, and that is uh, the translator is 
is seeking to communicate meaningfully with his audience. And so using language and concepts that will bridge the gap between a text that is, you know, distant in time and culture and whatever, uh, and bring it to the reader in a way that's meaningful. So, you know, there, there are wonderful examples in Genesis 1 in terms of the description in Genesis 1 verse 2 of the earth as tohu avohu. Well, what yes. does that mean, right? Well, the Greek translator uses the terminology of uh, invisible and unformed. Now, where did he get that language from? Well, there are a number of possibilities from within the text. Invisible, well, there wasn't any light, right? So you couldn't see it, or water covered everything, so you couldn't see it. But it's interesting that Plato, for example, uses that terminology with respect to his concept of the material physical world being based upon the world of ideas or forms, which are invisible, but they exist prior to the actual material physical world. And so the, the creation process involves giving form and structure to an idea that is invisible and unstructured. Well, that's the language that's used to express what whatever is meant in Hebrew by tohu avohu. Um, it's different, but although we're not always sure what the Hebrew terms mean because they don't occur that often. So he's borrowing language that would have been familiar to a literate Greek reader to say, okay, this is presumably what it means in Greek. Other places in Genesis, by the way, in which it looks as though the Greek translators are using concepts from Greek literature and even mythology come in chapter 6, you know, the story about the uh, uh, sons of God and the daughters of men producing, you know, giborim, and then later in, in Genesis talk about the rephaim. Well, in Greek, they're hoi gigantes, the giants, which in Greek mythology were the product of the gods producing a race of, of warrior humans. So the Greek translator picks that language to describe you know, these shadowy figures in the past. And of course, with respect to the, the Rephaim and, and so on, you know, there's talk later on about them, uh, the inhabitants of Canaan being Rephaim and that sort of thing. And they're being, you know, being big people and that sort of thing, having great cities. So that fit into the picture. Anytime we start talking about translations and people making choices when it comes to taking words with meaning and putting them into a different language with words that have different meanings or in a sentence structure that conveys meaning in very different forms, well, some people get a little bit nervous. How much confidence do we have about our scriptures? And how do we know we are reading what the author originally intended? If we are looking at a translation, can we negotiate our way back to the original text? So what does this scholar who spends his entire life examining text say to that? One makes an informed decision to say this is in all probability what would have been there. Can we be absolutely certain at every point? Uh, no, we can't. But 
uh, we can reconstruct with a pretty high degree of certainty what the original would have looked like. Now, that varies from book to book, of course. You know, some books in the Septuagint corpus, for example, Jeremiah, which looks in the Greek version quite different, uh, both in terms of length, but also in terms of arrangement of contents than the Masoretic text. So, or, you know, a book like Esther, which has two very early Greek translations. And the question is, what's the relationship between these translations? So in some books, it's more complicated than it is for, for other books. But I think in, in by and large, with most of the books, uh, we can do a pretty good job of reconstructing the original. Why, now, why do I say, you know, I have confidence? Because I'm convinced that for the most part, communication, human communication is intentional. So, you know, kind of in, in postmodern hermeneutics, there is this sense, you know, that has pervaded a lot of times uh, the conversation space that, well, how can we possibly presume to understand what someone thousands of years ago in a different culture and different language system meant? Um, and so meaning has come to reside in the reader, the interpreter, rather than in the, the original text. And I'm saying, well, we, we, we can't be so pessimistic because people communicated with intention. And we, yes, we have to do our homework in terms of understanding the language, the culture, that sort of thing, try and reconstruct it. But I think, you know, the whole of the human enterprise in terms of understanding our past and our history is based on the principle that communication is intentional. And so that's kind of where I'm coming from in that respect. Well, you've been listening to a really short summary of little bits and pieces of the conversation that Dr. Gruber had with Dr. Hebert. They go through history, language, culture, and philosophy in one way too short conversation. So you've had a small taste here, but for the full meal, for the full conversation, go to IsraelBibleCenter.com and look under the Round Table Talk tab. You will find it there. You should also know that the Weavers Institute for Pentateuch Studies at Trinity Western University offers courses during the summertime exploring the Septuagint Pentateuch. So if you enjoyed this conversation and uncovering all of these subtle differences between the Greek and the Hebrew, first go listen to the full conversation, the full roundtable talk, and then put a note in your calendar to go look for that course. I'll add links in the show notes to make everything easy for you. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. Thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related.